Welcome back to the 146th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the Biden administration's urges to colleges to basically have affirmative action without having affirmative action, why the left is pessimistic about some equality issues in America, and the GOP debate in Milwaukee approaches. And we'll talk about uh, whether Trump or not will show up and the opinions about it. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So we've had a conversation on this podcast before about affirmative action, about legacy admissions, and the hotly debated topics on college admissions, basically. And my question to you is, are these workarounds okay? If they are not explicitly, if colleges are not explicitly looking at the race of an individual, if they are not explicitly going for these unchangeable characteristics, maybe their gender, and they are not weighting them differently, but they're saying, oh, well, we want to know how your experience as XYZ minority or XYZ race has affected your life, that's a bit of a tricky workaround, but is it okay? Or does it basically serve the exact same purpose? I would argue that it does, but I want to hear everybody else's opinion. Throw it down in the comment section and let's jump to our first article. This one comes from the gyro. Biden administration urges colleges to pursue racial diversity without affirmative action. So, as I just described, the situation is as such. The Supreme Court said, hey, no more affirmative action. It is totally, totally a violation of the 14th Amendment, and this should not be something that colleges engage in. And then most colleges were like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's not a big deal. I mean, we've limited the amount of race, or maybe we can just have a essay where what experiences have you had as XYZ category? And then those people can demonstrate their writing ability as well as give a description of what their life has been like. And then this basically provides insight and the reader can gain an understanding of where each person is without necessarily going and saying, okay, because this person is of XYZ category, in this particular case, race, then we're going to give them preferable admission. So my question then becomes, well, if they're going to have these stories that enable them to talk about their experience, there's two interpretations of that. There's one that their interpretation of their life through the lens of race is inherently going to make them a more, what's the word I'm looking for here, enticing candidate for the college. But that also implies that the race still matters because if telling their story about how race has affected them or their race has affected them, then that inherently means that their race is valuable to these administrators, meaning affirmative action is still basically in place. Now, there is a second interpretation, which is, well, we just want to have an understanding of how the 
populace has been affected by whatever they're living in. And maybe if a student talks about their negative upbringing in a really rural part of Virginia or rural part of America or rural part of Minnesota that has less resources than the more urban areas, that these sort of things, having a well-written essay describing how life has not been the easiest for them and how they've overcome this, then this is just an objective way of going about it, determining who this person is, what values they hold, what they have learned, how they've overcome certain hardships. So there's, there's multiple interpretations here. I tend, and I say I tend, to come down on the former point of view. But that is only in certain cases where colleges have said that they're outright going to say or have essays where they talk about how their race has uh, affected the applicant. If they don't have those specific essays and they say, tell us about a hardship that you've experienced, it's still a little bit of a workaround, but it's more general that almost anybody can most definitely have a hardship that they can describe and give as a you know, maybe 1,000-word essay to these administrators saying, hey, I overcame this. It doesn't have to necessarily be about race and therefore is more open and equal for everybody. Because it, also remember, if they have a essay prompt talking about how your race has affected you, it, you know, sometimes white people could say that they're discriminated against, but it is a little bit more rare. I mean, it's we're openly allowed to bash a certain segment of the population nowadays, but that doesn't mean that white people get discriminated against in the same way that other races do. So it's hard for a white applicant to always write an essay that is compelling and really does pull on the heartstrings and show that the college should be empathetic to them. So this is all part of the reason that this article is important is because this is all part of guidance that is handed down by the Biden administration. And they're telling colleges, hey, this is how you should go about it in order to include minorities or help minorities in this application process. And when I say help, I don't mean give them a leg up. I mean just ensure that minorities are still coming to your college and that you are still having a diverse set of people on said college. Quote, it also encourages them to consider ending policies known as stint racial diversity, including preferences for legacy admission students and children of donors. Quote, ensuring access to higher education for students from different backgrounds is one of the most powerful tools we have to prepare graduates to lead an increasingly diverse nation and make real our country's promise of opportunity for all, Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement. So, end quote. So, you can see here that they're going after legacy admissions. And I have said it before, and I stand by it. Legacy admissions should be done for. And I think there is a genuine argument that could be made. Now, have I fully fleshed out and thought out every single aspect of it and thought of all the counter-arguments? No, no, no. I have not spent that much time harping on this next point. But I think there is most definitely an argument that could be made in order to focus more on low-income areas of the United States. I don't care what kind of low-income area it is. I don't care if it is in the hills of a city, or, sorry, the hills of the country, or the densely popped urban areas of a city, or it's in the suburbs of a metropolitan area. Whatever places have lower-income individuals, and college could be a 
huge step forward for their family, maybe their first generation. I know colleges do have some tendency to like first-generation applicants. So these sort of policies that focus on a population that wouldn't normally be able to access college, I think that that is a good policy going forward. And it's not simply because, oh, yes, we want a more diverse diverse amount of thought on campus. We want people from all different economic backgrounds. Of course, you know, that that does play into it a little bit. But from a purely practical standpoint, in order to ensure that people are constantly adding to the value of our country, then we want to pull them up out of situations that are a little bit harder and allow them to gain knowledge, experience, gain connections in different industries in order that they can have the optimal and the most effect on the economy that they can. And this is, you know, obviously not to say that people who don't go to college don't have a large effect on the economy. There are lots of people who don't go to college who have an amazing, amazing job that actually is more important than some of the white-collar jobs. There is no doubt about that. I mean, if you think about the UPS drivers that just came under scrutiny for their union getting a lot of concessions from UPS... There, a lot of them probably did go to college. Some of them probably didn't go to college. But they have a vital job that doesn't necessarily require a college degree. Now, we could all go back and forth about how much money they deserve to get, but we can't deny that our current economy, especially one of e-commerce, is built on the back of people that transport goods across the nation that don't necessarily have to have a white-collar you know, education in order to fulfill the needs for that job. But I do still believe that in our progress, in our movement towards an economy that is less based on industry and more based on innovation and services, which is what we've done, we need to at least provide those opportunities for a lot of blue-collar families who have children that do want to go to college and come out and get a white-collar job and move up the economic ladder, we need to enable them to do that. So having policies that are going to favor areas that are not as high income as maybe Leesburg in Virginia. I just moved to Kentucky, but I I don't know the equivalent here in Kentucky, maybe Louisville, maybe Lexington. But we need to have these different policies that enable people from the more rural parts of the state that may have underfunded education systems to stand out, step up, and really put their all in at college so that they could have a beneficial effect on their community if they want to go back or just on the overall American economy. So the overall trend that you see in this article is trying to go back and forth. They're trying to say, well, okay, we don't want to explicitly allow colleges to provide affirmative action tactics, but we still want them to do blah, blah, blah in order to ensure that certain groups, certain populations, certain ethnic groups get in to college and they are represented fairly on the campus. And like I said, it just it feels like a workaround. If I could choose between the two options that I have proposed here, or at least the two options going back a few seconds, the one, focusing on low-income areas and providing opportunities for first-generation students and for students who are in less fortunate situations or to have admissions that focus 
more on race, even if it's not in a affirmative action type, but more in a general, oh, tell us about your experiences about race versus tell us your experiences about growing up in the location that you grew up, which is so general that it could apply to everybody. It could apply to the wealthy and the poor, but it also gives the people who are a little bit less less advantaged and the poor the opportunity to describe what living in a poverty-stricken community or just a not-well-off community has affected them and how they've overcome it. And I would choose that option over the race-based one any day of the week. I actually think some of the proposals they have here, which are talking about the experiences that these people have, I've said it multiple times, I think that is actually better suited to solve the issue of having a population of people who are not as wealthy or not as economically well-off to come to college rather than actually trying to get people who are minorities to come to said colleges. But that is just my opinion on the matter. And just so you know, uh, the Students for Fair Admission, the group that fought through the Supreme Court in order to get the affirmative action ruling at Harvard and North Carolina State overturned, or sorry, the University of North Carolina overturned, They've sent out 150 letters all over the country to a whole bunch of different universities informing them that they have to stop using race as a factor in admissions. And it's a very general statement. It's, quote, take immediate steps to eliminate the use of race as a factor in admissions, end quote. And when I say it's general, it's not saying, hey, uh, just make sure that you're not weighing race more heavily when deciding. No, it's get rid of race as a factor. That is it's pretty general in that there, if these colleges start going about a practice, which is tell us how your race has affected you in these different admission essays, I feel like there may be another lawsuit here in a few years if they see that the statistics haven't changed with the amount of students who are coming to these colleges that are minorities because it will indicate that there's still an embedded affirmative action through the process. Or maybe not, but we'll see how this is going forward. I just wanted to point that out and give a little bit of a prediction so I can come back to this in a few years and say, wow, you were so, so wrong. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Examiner. Why the left is pessimistic about racial equality in America. So, you know, this is a a very contentious topic, as per always on this podcast. I've been veering into some more contentious ones recently, especially with affirmative action, but that's just a topic that I have very strong opinions about, especially with legacy admissions, too. That's one that is not as hotly debated, but still falls in that vein. But this is one that is pretty outright, or this article, it's pretty much outright calling the left out. They're saying, hey, Guys, come on, you got to stop being so pessimistic about this stuff. You got to stop having the perspective that nothing's going to change or that we haven't made enough progress. That, that's literally how they opened the article. Quote, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, it would have been hard for its supporters to imagine that roughly half of the country would consider it a mediocre victory decades later. But that appears to be the case. Pew Research Center asked people how much progress the nation has made in the last 60 years regarding racial equality. 52% of people think America made a great deal or a fair amount of progress, while only 38% of Democrats agree. 
43% of Democrats see some progress, and almost one in five see not much or no progress at all. So, and it's a little bit deceptive the way they do it there. There's not much or no progress at all. Those are the two bottom categories, and they are combining the respondents for both of them. So one in five, that's a little bit less than 20%. So because they say it's almost one in five. So, you know, it's not saying that a huge majority of the population is agreeing. It's even boiling it down to just Democrats. But it is something that points out, wow, okay, either we have lost perspective or things really haven't changed in more than... 52% of the people in America are really just blind to what's going on. I mean, even if you include the, the fair or the some progress of the democratic party, the 38%, then the people who are saying there's no progress, they're even completely disagreeing with people in their own party that have seen some progress. I mean, it's just, it's very, very interesting that these people don't see any progress whatsoever. Can we all sit on the same bus? Can we all have the same opportunities under the law? Yes, that is a step forward. Now, it may not be as much of a step forward as some people would like. Maybe they still see a system in place that perpetuates these different racist or maybe desperate impact kind of policies, but under the law, there is equal opportunity for all ever since the Civil Rights Act. Now, of course, I did read a book called, I believe it's The Color of Law or Law in Color, one of the two. It's a very interesting book that talks about how even though we are no longer in law allowing for different policies that would have disparate impacts on or sorry, not disparate impacts, because those are impacts that are not necessarily foreseen, but have direct impacts on populations of different ethnic groups. Even though we don't necessarily have those laws anymore, we don't have the administration in place to enforce said laws like the the policies that were present at the FHA for a very long time, the lingering effects of the policies in the past have still moved forward and created terrible opportunities like redlining or different policies that kept certain groups out of certain locations, housing projects, or different neighborhoods, and how they have actually forced a form of not de facto, not de jure, but de facto segregation within certain cities and urban areas, and so on and so forth. So I definitely think that there's an argument there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there hasn't been progress, and it doesn't mean that they have to things have to stay that the way they are. Now, because of previous policies and the hardship that a lot of these people in different minority groups have faced, yes, it is harder to move out of these particular neighborhoods, or maybe it's harder to send their kid to a better school system. But that doesn't mean that that option is not available to them. We're providing everybody underneath the law 
equal opportunity. And that is all the government should be able to do. So if you look at it in that sense, yes, we I think we have made a lot of progress. And the government should not be moving forward in order to ensure equal outcome, like a lot of people who would argue that we need more racial progress would say. Or that's my opinion on it. And the Washington Examiner has a, a similar opinion as well. Quote, until civil rights legislation came along, it was legal for private companies and governments at every level to openly discriminate against non-white people. The country took tremendous steps to ensure equal opportunity and colorblind standards. When it came to voting rights, job applications, criminal justice, the theory was that our system would not penalize skin color. That goal was never enough for the left. The philosophy that has dominated for so long says that people do not have equal rights until they experience equal outcomes. It goes like this. Even if laws and policies are colorblind on paper, they must be racist if more non-whites are punished under them. And even if it's illegal to deny jobs or housing based on race, the system must be racist if some demographics don't end up with them as often. So what they're saying here is it's a problem of equal opportunity versus equal outcome. This has been a serious conversation and a very prominent one that has made its way into the mainstream as the left and the right have really come to bat on these kind of particular issues. Should we provide every single person, every man, woman, child, well, child's a little bit, you know, a little bit of an exception, but every man, woman of every creed, should we allow them the same opportunities, the same economic mobility, if they so choose to go about their way in a res- their life in a responsible way and really pull up their family from the lower economic rungs, are we providing the same opportunity or do we want to provide the same outcome? No matter where you are, whether you're middle class or you're in the lower class, do we want to provide a... St- strict level that everybody will end up at. If you're extremely wealthy, you'll get pulled down to that level. And if you're on the lower end, you'll get pulled up to that level. And if you're in the middle, maybe you'll get pulled down one year or up the next year. So do we want to have a definitive, hey, this is where we have to end up answer? I think that that is extremely, extremely foolish, not just in economic terms, but also in housing terms, also in the consumer good terms, if outcomes are exactly the same for everybody, what does that mean? It means that we have to rigorously plan. We have to rigorously put up a system in which we evaluate what each person makes each year, what each person contributes each year, and then determine what we have to give or take away from them in order to get them to this bar. And then at that point, we have to equalize everything. Well, we can't have one person who is having caviar at his dinner and one person that is only able to afford bread. No, everybody's going to have to eat bread with maybe a little bit of caviar, or maybe everybody's just going to have to eat bread. See, these equal outcomes, for the most part, they tend to pull everything down rather than raise everything up. With equal opportunity, you allow the forces of the market, the forces of individualism, the forces of individual choice to supersede what the best plan, what the central plan would dictate under the idea of equal outcome. 
And personally, as a person who very much enjoys their freedom and their liberty, and someone who is a individualist and who doesn't necessarily eat everything that everybody else is eating, that doesn't necessarily buy all the same things everybody else is, then I, you know, I kind of like the ability to choose for myself what is best for me, rather than someone telling me, hey, you know, you need to give up some of your freedoms in order to ensure that Boschmo down the road in order that the outcomes are the exact same. It's not that you are going to eat really cheap peanut butter that you like, powdered peanut butter, that's one of my favorites. No, 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 we're going to have a standard subsidy for Jif peanut butter, and everybody's going to have Jif peanut butter. And you know what? For those of you who are keto fans, it's just too expensive for everybody to have keto bread, so we're going to subsidize normal bread and then therefore probably give certain companies a monopoly as well. That's another unintended effect of this central planning that would be necessary in order to have equal outcome, you're probably going to have to favor particular companies and industries or even a government version, a private, not a private company, but a public company in order to supply these goods and produce them in the way that would be necessary to have equal outcome across the board. So that's one of the many reasons that I'm opposed to this push for equal outcome rather than equal opportunity. Now, of course, there are arguments that have been presented as from the left and also in the book that I was talking about that equal opportunity isn't necessarily enough because of the effects of discrimination in the past. They linger and they move forward. But my question then becomes to the people that are affected like this. Do you want to be given a leg up because somebody else did something else to hurt members of your family, members of your community in the past? Do you want to be given a handout because of previous discrimination and the situation that you're in? And I know I'm framing it kind of obviously here, uh, a handout, but do you want to be told that your past, your family's past actions have determined your ability to live in this current society, effectually telling you that you actually don't have an ability yourself you do not have the capability in order to get past this. You do not have the will, the determination, the ability. You do not have the power as an individual in order to affect change in your life. I feel like that's so, so disheartening if somebody truly believes that because of past discrimination, because of past policies that have affected their family, their community, that they can't change their current situation. I feel like people who really have that point of view, they're not giving themselves enough credit. They're saying that, oh, I can't overcome this. I can't get past this. That is not the mentality that we want to instill in the next generation. So uh, this is where we come to a, another policy debate is, do we want to have policies that really tell people that, no, they don't have the ability to move up and that the government has to help them? Or do we want to tell people hey, we understand that something happened here in the past. We've provided equal opportunities. And that's because we know, we believe that equal opportunities works because we know that you as an individual have a certain skill that could be useful in the market, that you have something to add to society. That is why equal opportunity is so beautiful because it directly goes to the person and says, you are worth something. We believe that you have value and you can add value to this system. And you just have to try hard enough. You just have to want to add to this system in order to make your life better. Now, that's enough rambling on this one. Let's jump to our final article that comes from The Dispatch. 
the GOP debate in Milwaukee approaches. So, you know, this is a, a talking point that a lot of people in conservative and liberal media have been going back and forth on, which is, will Donald Trump show up to the debate? At this first debate, will he be there? Will he be on stage? Will he be the punching bag that everybody is aiming at? Or will he leave it to the people that are a little bit below him? And his argument that, well, you know, I'm so far ahead that why would I go to a debate? Well, how does it benefit me in any way? I understand it on a purely practical level, on a purely political level, but as a person who's still a little bit of an idealist, come on, go to the debate. Not only will it be entertaining and funny, and you know that's, of course, selfish on my point, as Donald Trump has pointed out himself in multiple clips that have indeed gone viral, but also you are a potential representative of probably about 50%, 45% of this country. The fact that you are not willing to go up on stage and represent your views and say to the people what exactly you're going to do for them to debate policy with other politicians to provide the primary voters a insight into how you are different and how you are going to govern different than these other candidates, this is a, a very key part of our democracy. Now, I understand that we didn't always have debates, but the reason that we have debates now and the reason that they've stuck around so long is because they are extremely, extremely valuable in determining what each person believes, putting them on a stage, on a microphone. They can't pre-plan or they can pre-plan some of their answers, but there are certain situations that cannot be foreseen. They allow people to jab and poke and have epic moments like Chris Christie destroying Mark Rubio or Donald Trump going against Hillary Clinton or Hillary Clinton going against Donald Trump and making fair points or Obama owning Romney. There are all these possible opportunities that show us how different leaders think on their feet. And this is a very important characteristic that we want in our leaders. They will be on the world stage at different points having conversations with a whole bunch of world leaders and they have to actively defend their position and sometimes they have to actively debate their position or have long-form discussions that may be televised with other leaders. And I think this is something that we need to ensure is still the case in all of these elections. We need to ensure that every single person that is a possible candidate shows up. Because if you start having the standard, oh, that you don't have to debate because you believe you're so far ahead or because you believe that you're going to win, what happens when you get to the general election? Guess who also isn't doing a debate right now? Joe Biden. He is not debating RFK. He is not debating Marianne Williams. He's not debating Cornell West, even though they're from a different party. So there's not necessarily a point to have him there on a Democratic primary debate. But my point is, if we have this standard set where you don't have to show up to these debates, where you don't have to have a confrontational meeting against somebody who holds different values than you and describe why they're wrong, then we are effectively losing the ability to discriminate between these different viewpoints and choose which one best suits us. And I feel like that is something that we can't stand for here in America. We need this debate to have Donald Trump at it. We need the future debates to have Joe Biden and Donald Trump. We need the Democratic primary debate to have Joe Biden, Marianne, and RFK. This is a, a terrible standard that is being set, and I, I don't like it overall. Come on. The leaders of the parties, the leading candidates, 
debate, guys. If you truly believe that your lead is so amazing that it won't be undone by anything, that you truly believe you have it in the bag, then go to these debates and prove that you're still number one. I understand why Joe Biden's not doing it. I understand why Trump says he's not doing it. But guys, this is this is outrageous in my opinion. But you know, enough about all this negative stuff. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Hudsonton Times. Cat politely asks human to put down phone and pet it. So, you know, we always have, everybody has that one friend who really needs attention, or maybe they have that cousin, or even if you're an adult, that one kid that really, really needs attention. Well, this is basically the cat in this video. Quote, a funny video of a cat putting down the phone of his human has gone viral. Cats don't always want their humans to pet them, but when they do, they often find the perfect way to express their desires. And I mean, that is true. This cat knows exactly what it wants, and it is not hesitating at all in order to get it. So in the video, the, the cat basically comes up, he puts his paw on both paws on the phone, and he slowly drags it down. And as he does, he nudges his head a little bit more into the human's lap, and the human starts petting him, and you can tell that the cat is very, very satisfied. And if you want to see this cute video, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button, where you can also find down there is the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade on Tuesday and Thursday, 10 minutes, unscripted, not like this where we're quoting from articles, just more of a, a commentary or a hey, what's on the top of my head kind of thing. If I'm reading something interesting that week or you see a different trend and I really want to comment on it. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.